We are starting a brand new study in the book of 1 Thessalonians today and then we'll go on to 2 Thessalonians. These two books of the Bible in the New Testament are letters. The technical term for them is epistles. They're epistles. And they were actual letters written from the Apostle Paul to a young church in a city located on the coast of modern-day Greece called Thessalonica. We're actually going to start in Acts chapter 17. So if you want to put a marker in 1 Thessalonians 1 and then flip back in your Bibles a few books to find Acts chapter 17, we'll be kicking off there in just a moment. The Apostle Paul was about five years younger than Jesus. But he did not follow Jesus while Jesus was alive on the earth in human form. Paul was raised a devout Jew. His parents named him Saul after Israel's first king. Later, he would be known as Paul, which was just the Roman version of the name Saul. He grew up as a prodigy, a prodigy, a Jew of Jews, as he tells us in some of his writings. He studied under the best Jewish religious teacher of the day in the world named Gamaliel and rose to become a member of the Pharisees, the ruling religious and political group in Israel at that time. Later, he would rise even higher to become a member of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish political council located in Jerusalem that ruled civilian life in Israel. Israel under the authority of the Romans. When the church came into existence in 33 AD, it didn't take long for the Jews to begin considering it a blasphemous cult and begin persecuting Christians. And Paul was so zealous about his Judaism that he passionately joined in this persecution, taking the initiative to round up Christians, see them beaten, tortured, imprisoned, and even killed. In fact, some of you will recall in the book of Acts that he gets started on this bloodthirsty quest of persecution by holding the coats of the mob who stones Stephen to death, making him the first recorded martyr in the history of the church. But then something amazing happens. Paul has a direct and supernatural encounter with the risen Jesus while he's traveling to Damascus. And you can read about that in chapter nine of the book of Acts at your own leisure. But after that encounter, that transformational, life-changing encounter with Jesus, he does a 180 and becomes a Christian. He spent the next three years in a small town in Arabia studying the scriptures, learning to understand how the Jesus that lived and died in Jerusalem was the Messiah of the Old Testament. Paul knew the Old Testament inside and out, backwards and forwards, every which way, and he had this encounter with Jesus. So he knew Jesus was real, he knew he was the Messiah, but he needed to understand how, how it all worked in the scriptures. And he will tell us in some of his other letters that he is taught by the Lord himself supernaturally as he studies these books and scrolls of the Old Testament over those three years. And Paul gets the answers he's looking for. And the man who comes out of that three-year time period in the wilderness is one of the greatest minds the world has ever seen. A man who knew the scriptures essentially by memory and could converse 
powerfully with the greatest debaters and philosophers in the world. He is an incredible public speaker and has an unshakable will to preach the gospel, the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. He then returns to his hometown of Tarsus where he actually stays for about a decade until a missionary named Barnabas brings him to a city named Antioch where they teach together for about a year. In that time, Antioch, the church there, becomes sort of a home base for missions trips all over the known world to preach the gospel. Shortly after that year that he spends there in Antioch, Paul heads out with Barnabas on their first missionary journey, which is later followed by a, you'll never guess, second missionary journey that takes place somewhere between 49 and 52 AD. This time Paul goes with a man named Silas instead of Barnabas, and he also goes with Luke, the famed author of the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. And you can read about that second missionary journey, I put the note on your outlines, in Acts 15 to 18. And it's on the second missionary journey that Paul visits the city of Thessalonica. Thessalonica was founded in 315 BC by Cassandra, who was the son-in-law of Philip of Macedon. And Cassandra is a name you might have heard before speaking of antiquity because he was one of Alexander the Great's four key generals. He named the city after his wife, Thessalonike, who was the half-sister of Alexander the Great. And Thessalonica was the capital and most populous city of the Roman province of Macedonia. It was, for all intents and purposes, the unofficial capital of the territory of Greece. It had a population of around 200,000 people, which was a metropolis, a large city in those days. And it was the capital of the province because it had a wonderfully strategic location. It had a naturally sheltered harbor, and it was located on the main shipping route between Rome and the east. And Paul was very smart in targeting places like this because what happens is you constantly have a transient population passing through these shipping port coastal towns. You have people coming on boats working, people traveling, people trading. So if you can establish churches in these sort of hubs of commerce and trade, then people are going to visit, they're gonna hear the gospel and they're gonna take the gospel with them wherever they're going next. And so by establishing churches in these key places, the gospel can travel across the world very, very quickly. This might have been a great idea of Paul, but more likely it was a great idea of the Holy Spirit, if we're actually honest. Now, like Athens, Thessalonica was special. It was unique because the Romans allowed it to be what was called a free city. That meant there were no Roman soldiers stationed anywhere in the city. The idea is that the city and the civic leaders had demonstrated to Rome that they were not going to be any sort of problem to them. They were gonna accept their Roman rulers. They were not gonna cause civil trouble. And if anything happened in their town, things got out of line. Any type of revolt type sentiments began to stir. They would take care of them. The Romans wouldn't need to get involved. So they were granted the privileged status like Athens of being a free city. It was a wealthy city. Interestingly, it's one of the only cities of antiquity from the days of the Roman Empire that still exists today. And it's still actually called Thessaloniki today. You can go visit it in Greece, it's an actual city. When Paul shows up, he is still scabbed over 
and not walking very easily because he's been beaten with rods to within an inch of his life just weeks earlier in the city of Philippi. This was an official punishment, and it was literally that. It was not a beating with a whip. It was a beating with a hard rod. If you imagine someone essentially beating you with an iron pipe on your back and body over and over again, it was like that. You were beaten to within an inch of his life, and it happened to Silas, and it happened to Paul. And so when he shows up in Thessalonica, he's in a bad way. His body is permanently disfigured. The scars and scabs are still clearly visible, and you can read about that in Acts 16. And so we're going to take a look in Acts 17. We'll start in verse 1, and we're going to read about their stop in Thessalonica. It says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them And for three Sabbaths, underlying three Sabbaths, reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. The word Christ is simply the Greek word for Messiah. So he's telling them, this Jesus who I preach to you is the Messiah. The New Testament, understand, doesn't even exist yet. It hasn't been written at this time. So what Paul is doing is he's going into the synagogue, he's speaking to the Jews, and he's showing them all these Old Testament prophecies about the coming Messiah, and he's making the case that Jesus of Nazareth was and is the Messiah prophesied by the Old Testament scriptures. Then we read, and some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks And not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. And so a church was born in Thessalonica. And we find that it was made up of only a few Jews. Most of them didn't receive the gospel. But mostly a large number of Gentile, mostly a large number of non-Jewish Greeks. And most notably, a significant number of influential women of the city. Thessalonica would be categorized as a Roman or or pagan city, and so the more liberal values meant that women could do things they couldn't do in Israel, like own businesses. Couldn't do it in Israel, but you could do it in the Roman Empire. So when Paul says they were leading women, he's meaning that they were women of wealth, women of business, commerce, women of influence, much like Lydia in the city of Philippi. So understand this, Paul's outreach pretty much begun with this first presentation in the synagogue. As we read, that was his custom. He'd go into a city, go to the synagogue. He had such a heart for the Jews still, he longed to see his own people realize that Jesus was the Messiah. And so he would begin by presenting the gospel, reasoning from the scriptures in the synagogue. He's only in the city, we're told, for three Sabbaths, meaning that in all likelihood, after he makes that presentation on the first Sabbath, he's only really there for around two and a half more weeks to minister and teach those who responded to his message. That's how long he's there. And we're going to come back in a moment to why that's so interesting and important. But let's keep reading. But the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, 
took some of the evil men from the marketplace, these are just troublemakers and rioters for hire basically, and gathering a mob set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, who was one of the new believers, likely a Greek, and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So this group of troublemakers try to get Paul and Silas in trouble with the city leaders by claiming that they're trying to recruit people to serve another king, Jesus, instead of Caesar. And this would have terrified the local leaders because, as we said, any kind of trouble, any hint of insurrection could put their status as a free city in jeopardy with Rome. If Rome heard about this and felt like they weren't handling the situation well, the Romans would just send in a whole bunch of soldiers, they'd round up some people, crucify a bunch of them, just to let everyone know who was in charge. In reality, Paul and Silas were teaching Jesus as king, but they were teaching him as the king of a supernatural kingdom. Interestingly, you might recall, this is the exact same tactic the Jews used with Pontius Pilate in order to try and have him arrest and execute Jesus. Do you remember this? They made the claim that he was claiming he was king of a kingdom instead of Caesar. And what did Jesus tell Pilate in John 18? He said, my kingdom is not of this world. Then we keep reading and it says, so when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So Jason reassures the city leaders that he and the other Christians are not out to cause any trouble or recruit for some sort of revolt against Caesar and they let him go. But Jason and the other new believers quickly realize there's a group of people in the city who want to see Paul and Silas dead, which is why we read in the next sentence, then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. They said, you, you guys got to get out of here. We love you, but you got to go or you're going to die in Thessalonica. So even though Paul is only in the city for three Sabbaths, less than a month, he plants a church and before he leaves, we'll find he, he actually appoints elders. We know he has to go in a hurry, so I think we can logically deduce that he appoints elders that night before he leaves. He's like, uh, you, 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 and you. Yeah, you're the elders of the church. Have with it, guys. God is with you. Be blessed. And then he has to go. And the crazy thing is that the church survives and the church actually grows and thrives. How? Because God is moving. God is just doing something. This is an incredible time in church history. This is not a model, by the way. This is not how you plant a church. You do not go into somewhere for three Sundays, preach three times, have a couple of one-on-one -on -one meetings, pick some elders, and then head out of there. That's not a model for church planning, but sometimes it's the only thing that can be done, and so God moves through it. He moves through it. Well, after reaching Berea, Paul continues his journey to Athens, before ending up in the city of Corinth, where he stays for a while. And five or six months later, Silas and Timothy returned to Thessalonica to visit the young church. And it must have been tense for Paul because he would have, would have heard nothing really over those last six months. And he's praying for them regularly and he's thinking, man, I wonder what's going on. I wonder how they're doing. I wonder if the church is still going. I, I hope the guys are doing okay. And during that visit, Timothy and Silas discover 
wonderfully that the believers in Thessalonica really love the Lord and they're standing strong in the faith. They are living for the Lord faithfully. But many of them have misinterpreted the teachings that Paul has given them about the end times. Some of them have even quit their jobs because they're like, Jesus is coming soon, so, uh, so why go to work? I was gonna stay home today. They were also really worried about some of the things they were seeing going on around them and they couldn't make sense of them in light of some of the teachings that Paul had given them. So there was confusion. Timothy and Silas then return to Corinth where they connect with Paul and they report all of this to him. And historians tell us that in the days that follow, Paul likely dictates this letter of 1 Thessalonians, writing to clear up and encourage this young church that's no more than six months old. Shortly after that, he gets a reply from them and writes back to them, and that's the letter of 2 Thessalonians. So these two letters, these two epistles are considered by scholars to be likely the earliest writings in the New Testament, written around 50 to 51 AD. You know, I'm so glad that we live in a time where there's no more misunderstandings about the end times in the church. A time when I don't have to worry about the things I teach concerning the end times being misinterpreted by anyone. That's sarcasm if you couldn't tell. And, and this study that we're going to be going through is so relevant today because there are still so many misunderstandings and so many misrepresentations about the end times in the church. The average Christian is still confused or ignorant concerning what the scriptures say about the end times and the coming of Christ. So stick with us for this series and educate yourself or re-educate yourself or refresh yourself on what the Bible says about the end times. And here's what's so interesting to me about these letters. In them, Paul is going to be reminding the Thessalonians of some of the things he taught them while he was with them. In general, he's gonna be refreshing their memories as opposed to giving them new teaching and new instruction, which is fascinating because they reveal what Paul taught this group of new believers first during the first few weeks of their new faith. If you were teaching a group of new believers what subjects would you get to early on in the first few weeks of doing Bible studies with them? We're gonna discover that Paul talked extensively with these Thessalonians about the end times. He talked to them about God's plans for the earth, Jesus coming back, the future destiny of the church, the rapture, all that kind of stuff. The technical term is eschatology. Paul gave these new believers a bunch of teaching on eschatology. Write this down. In their first few weeks of faith, Paul taught the new Thessalonian believers extensive eschatology. Extensive eschatology. And I point that out because so many churches today, so many believers today, when it comes to eschatology, have an attitude of let's focus on more important and pressing topics. Let's talk about the things that people are going through in their lives right now. Let's talk about subjects that are actually useful and practical. What's the point in talking about all that future stuff? God's going to do what God's going to do. There's, there's no point answering questions that people aren't asking. And those churches and those believers have good intentions. But Paul, probably the greatest pastor and missionary of all time, clearly felt that understanding what the scriptures say about the end times was vital teaching even for new believers. 
And if you've been going to our church for a while, then you know that the subject of the end times sure comes up a whole lot in the Bible, especially for a subject that's supposedly not important. Paul taught on eschatology to the Thessalonians because it is important. If you study through the book of Revelation, you know why it's important. It changes the way you live your life. The more detailed your vision of eternity is, the more vivid it is, the easier it is to remember that this life is not what we're living for. This life is not all there is. And when our focus begins to shift from earth to eternity with Jesus, it dramatically changes the way we live here on the earth. At the Last Supper, it says this. I put it on your outlines in John 13 about Jesus. It says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given, underline, all things into his hands, and that he had come from, underline, from God, and was going to, underline to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. Far from a focus on where we're going, making us ineffective, we see here that right after this, Jesus would wash the feet of his disciples. He would serve, and he had the strength and the security and the motivation to do that because he understood where he came from but he also understood where he was going and he understood his position in relationship to his heavenly father. So knowing where he was going, knowing what awaited him, empowered Jesus, gave him hope and strength in the present to serve more effectively. It's not that looking forward ahead to heaven causes you to check out of this life, it's that it gives you the hope and the energy to persevere and endure in this life and continue serving even when it's difficult. It gives us motivation even when following Jesus is costly. It lets us know where world events are headed, which gives us peace when it seems like the whole world is running off the rails. So yes, it's helpful for even new believers to learn eschatology. Paul certainly thought so, and so do I. Now just as an interesting side note for you students of the Bible, as we said, New Testament hasn't even been written yet. So how fascinating is this that Paul's teaching them about the end times exclusively from the Old Testament scriptures. That's a Bible study I would have loved to be in on. But he's talking to them about the rapture and he's talking to them about the second coming of Christ from the Old Testament scriptures because that stuff is in there and you'll recall some of that if you were with us when we went through the book of Daniel, but very interesting. Well, let's flip ahead to 1 Thessalonians chapter one and we'll jump in. We'll jump in, verse one. It says, Paul... Silvanus and Timothy. Silvanus is simply Silas. And you'll recall, as we said earlier, he was a co-minister with Paul on his second missionary journey. He was with Paul when he planted the church in Thessalonica, so they all knew and loved him too. And Timothy, as we said, was a young pastor and Paul's protege. He visited the church in Thessalonica with Silas five to six months after Paul was there and brought the report to Paul that led to him writing 1 Thessalonians. So they also knew and loved Timothy. They had met him. To the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you underline that word in? In God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll notice that Paul puts God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ on equal footing in this greeting. It's subtle, but it's there, and it's something Paul can only do if Jesus is who? If he's God. He's God. He puts him on equal footing with God. And I had you underline the word in 
because it's not a spatial statement, it's a positional statement. We have an organic union with God in the sense that every believer had God's spirit come into them at their moment of salvation, at the moment they gave their life to God. This is what we mean when we talk about God being in us, and it's what Paul is talking about when he refers to the Thessalonian church as being in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And I can't stress to you how important this concept is. We're joined to Jesus. We're joined to the Lord in an organic way. He's part of us, and through Jesus, we are part of him. We don't drift in and out of our connection to the Lord any more than we drift in and out of our connection with our left arm. And if that blows your mind, then you might be starting to get it. Jesus actually told his disciples we wouldn't understand the true reality of what this means until we arrive in the presence of Jesus. Jesus said to his disciples, and he said to you and I, he said, a little while longer and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. At that day, so when we're with the Lord, at that day you will know, you'll get it, that, underline this, I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Jesus straight up tells his disciples, when you're with me in my presence, with my Father, then you'll get it. Then you'll understand how we're all connected. And this little piece of doctrine, God in us, us in God, is why Paul is not just saying imaginary nice things, but he's talking about reality. When in Romans 8, he says, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. How do you know that, Paul? Because God is in us and we are in God. And it's not us that keeps that connection intact, it's God. And it's why you can be confident that connection will not break. God holds onto us, we are in Christ, so nothing can separate us from him. We are in him and he is in us. He goes on and he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The word peace there isn't the same as the Hebrew word shalom. It's referring to a deep and abiding peace that comes from being reconciled to God through Jesus. It's the peace that you can only have when you know your sins are forgiven and you are in a right relationship with God. The whole idea is it's a peace that can only be found in God because only God can free us from the guilt and shame and curse of our sins. Man, we're already at verse two. We're just flying through this stuff. Verse two, we give thanks, underline, give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. And so the idea here is that the three of them, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, had been praying together for the Thessalonian believers. And ever since they had got this report, they were able to pray together with more detail and more thanks. And we see here this idea that we talked about in our Mastermind series just over the last few weeks, the idea of praying with thanksgiving. The idea is that as he's praying, even though he's concerned for them, Paul and Silas and Timothy haven't been praying, God, please help those ignorant Thessalonians. Gosh, they know nothing. They didn't, they didn't seem like they were paying very much attention when I was teaching them. And I just don't see 
how in the world they're possibly going to make it with, with nobody really there who's known the Lord very long. Instead, the idea is that they've been praying, Lord, thank you for saving them. Thank you that you had people there waiting for us to share the gospel with. Thank you that you'll be faithful to complete the work that you've started in them. Thank you that they love your word. Help them to continue growing in their understanding. They were praying this way, in a way that built their faith in what God was doing and who God was and how much God loved all of them. Pray with thanksgiving. As we said a couple of weeks ago, not because God needs to be reminded, but because you and I need to be reminded of the character of God. Always, always pray with thanksgiving. Now Paul goes on to say why he's so thankful for them. And he's going to list three characteristics of genuine faith. Three signs that a person has experienced true conversion. What does it mean to be a Christian? How do you know when you're an actually a Christian? What do, you, what do you have to do? These are the three pieces of evidence that show up in a person's life when they've truly given their lives to Jesus. And Paul says, we're so thankful when we pray for you because we see these evidences in you. It looks like this, verse 3. Remembering without ceasing your underlying work of faith, your labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father. In 1 Corinthians 13, 13, Paul would famously write about these exact three things, saying what? He would say, and now abide faith, hope, and love. These three, the work of Faith, the patience of hope, and the labor of love. This is a theme that Paul will refer to over and over again in his letters. The work of faith, what is it? Simply put, it's believing in Jesus, believing that he is who he says he is. And write this down, it's placing your faith in Jesus as your God and Savior. It's placing your faith in Jesus as your God and Savior. When someone asked Jesus the question, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? On your outlines, underline that word work. What do we have to do to work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work, singular, of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. This is the one thing you're to do. What must I do to earn salvation? What must I do? This is the one thing you need to do, believe. Believe in the one who's been sent. The labor of love. When Jesus becomes God of your life, your priorities change. Because you've experienced the love of God, you can't help but want to love him in return. When you understand how much he's loved you, that he's died for you, that he wants you to have the best life you can, the most fulfilling life you can here, the most significant life you can onto an eternity with him. When you've experienced the love of God, you can't help but love him in return. And your decisions and your actions become driven by that love for Jesus, which changes the way you live. It causes you to live for Jesus and want to do whatever he asks of you. Additionally, his spirit is now inside of you, changing you from the inside out and making you more like him. And this causes you to begin seeing the world and seeing people differently. 
you start developing the characteristics of Jesus. You start loving people more like Jesus loves them. And as you're changed on the inside, what's on the inside always makes its way onto the outside. And good things, good works begin naturally flowing out of your life. I'm not saying you do good things in order to be saved. I'm saying that because you're saved, good things, good works begin to naturally flow out of your life. The Bible would call it good fruit. You're producing good fruit like a healthy fruit tree. And when Paul hears that the Thessalonians are living radically different lives to who they were six months ago, they're living fruitful lives, and they've continued living this way for the past six months, he rejoices and says, this is proof you're really saved. This is evidence that God is in you. The original language tells us that when he talks about the labor of love, Paul's talking about fatigue to the point of weariness. Fatigue to the point of weariness. They were serving the Lord with their lives even when it was exhausting. But they were glad to do it because they were so overwhelmed by God's love for them. They're so overwhelmed by God's love for them. They literally labored in love for the Lord. They were doing hard service, hard work for the Lord, but it didn't feel like hard work because they were so in love with Jesus. Write this down. The labor of love refers to sacrificially serving the Lord with your life. Sacrificially serving the Lord with your life. Jesus said it like this very plainly. Jesus said, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Jesus was upfront about it. In the Western modern church today, there are church growth specialists, coaches that you can hire and work with, and they'll tell you that if you want to get your congregation more involved in serving, you want to get more people in your church serving, they'll all say the same thing. What you need to do is make the commitment sound as small as possible. It's the same tactic we use with car payments, right? It's the reason why they advertise car payments as every two weeks or twice a month because then the number's smaller than if they show you the monthly payment. So the smaller you can make the commitment look, the more interested people are going to be in the deal. And so church experts will say, listen, you need to pitch it to your people like, all we're asking for is two hours of serving once a month because if you make it sound too tiring, nobody's gonna wanna do it. I'm all for health and sustainability. I've been burned out before. It's not a good thing. But in the church and more importantly in our lives, we have to watch that we don't fall all the way into the other place of saying, yeah, that sounds hard. That sounds tiring. I don't really want to serve the Lord that way. I don't really have the spiritual gift of like effort. So I don't really want to do that. We don't want to be unhealthy. We don't want to be unhealthy. We don't want to take on commitments we can't keep up. But we don't want to bail on serving Jesus just because, heaven forbid, we might actually be a little tired after we serve the Lord. Paul specifically told the Thessalonians that their willingness to serve the Lord to the point of fatigue was an evidence of their salvation. And we shouldn't take that lightly. Now again, here's the key. You say like, oh, so Jeff, then I need to serve the Lord till I'm just fatigued and miserable? No, no, no. What did Jesus say? He said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
But yet you see his disciples laying down their lives in radical ways, serving the Lord with their whole heart and effort, but it doesn't feel laborious to them. It doesn't feel cumbersome. Because if it ever feels that way, you're not serving the Lord out of a love for him. You're serving him out of legalism or religion. You're trying to earn favor or do it because you think it's a good thing you should do. You're not doing it because you love the Lord. When you do it because you love the Lord, the idea is that you can serve the Lord with effort to the point of fatigue, but at the end of the day, you don't go like, oh, that was so awful serving the Lord again. It's a joy to do. That's the idea. Paul says, I see that in you guys, and I love that. It's evidence that you really belong to Jesus. Some believers regularly serve the Lord, even from a place of being tired when they start, and if that's you, God bless you for that. But some believers avoid working for the Lord with more diligence than a Vancouverite avoids gluten. And if that's you, if that's you, man, I, I just say check yourself. Check yourself. These, these three evidences of genuine faith are useful for evaluating yourself examining your motivations and examining your priorities. If you find that you never really end up serving the Lord or helping the church where there's a practical need because you need me time, then examine yourself and go read what Jesus has to say to the Laodicean church in Revelation chapter three. Go read that. Then he talks about the patience of hope. It refers to patience in the sense of cheerful or hopeful steadfastness. They kept their hope in Jesus. They kept the faith that they were going to be with him in eternity. And they kept looking for his return at any moment with great hope. They endured difficult times and circumstances by finding unshakable joy in looking ahead to their future in Jesus. And we'll talk more about specifically the kind of difficulties they were going through when we get to verse six. But for now, write this down. The patience of hope refers to finding hope and joy by longing and looking for the return of Jesus. Finding hope and joy by longing and looking for the return of Jesus. And if you're in this church, if you come to our men's group, or, or I know if you go to the women's group, then I, I know you've experienced this. Sometimes we just get together and we just talk about the Lord, talk about his coming. Why? Because it, it, it fills us with joy. It fills us with hope. We just love to do that. So Paul mentions these three characteristics of genuine faith, and he says, we rejoice, Thessalonians, because we see these in you. We thank God for that. Verse 4 Knowing, beloved brethren, and I just wanted to mention, because I don't think we ever have before, if you don't know, brethren just means brothers in the sense of family. And we all understand that what makes someone your brother is if you're born into the same family. The idea here is that when we were born again, when we gave our lives to Jesus, we were born again into the same family, the family of God. And that's why Paul calls the Thessalonian believers brethren. It's why some Christians call each other brother or sister. We've been born into the same family with a much deeper bond than we actually have with even our earthly blood relatives. The, the bond that we have is through the blood of Jesus. And we're gonna be connected all the way into eternity. So he says in verse four, knowing beloved brethren, your election by God. Your election by God. If there was ever a loaded term when you're doing an expositional Bible study, it's this word election, election. And it means exactly what you think. 
that we were chosen by God. God chose us, that's the idea. If we needed it to be any clearer, Jesus did a pretty good job, I think, of clearing it up when he himself said, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And he also said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying that our our broken, sinful spirits don't even know naturally to seek God. It it doesn't even cross our minds. It doesn't even cross our, our wicked hearts before we know him. Man, I'm a sinner and I need saving. That that doesn't even enter us. We don't have the capability for that. That only happens because God the Father supernaturally draws us toward Jesus. When someone begins sincerely thinking and asking, man, what's the meaning of life? What's the Bible talking about? That's God drawing them supernaturally, inviting them to seek Jesus. And this would be a scary reality if it weren't for the glorious truth that the Bible also tells us that God is, it's on your outlines, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You see, the good news is that God wants everyone to be saved. We don't even know to seek him. We will only seek Jesus if God draws us to him. That's concerning, but what's the good news? He wants everyone to be saved. So what does that mean? That means he does draw everyone to himself. The problem is that not everyone wants to be drawn to God. To me, one of the the most disturbing and yet simple verses in the Bible is John 3.19, which tells us this is the condemnation, that the light, speaking of Jesus, has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. He came to draw men to himself, but not all men want to be drawn. Some prefer the darkness. Love has to involve a choice. It has to involve free will. And the Lord laid this concept out in the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3, 16. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever, would you underline whoever, believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God makes himself available to everyone. He makes forgiveness available to everyone. He draws everyone, but not everyone wants to be drawn. But whoever wants to, whoever is willing to receive him, receives everlasting life. Now because God knows the future, he knows who's going to use their free will to accept his invitation. And God knowing who will use their free will to accept his invitation in no way interferes with their free will. If I put a cookie on my counter, there are certain children of mine, I can leave the room, and I know they're gonna take that cookie. Did I make them take that cookie? No. Did me knowing that they were gonna take the cookie make them take the cookie? No. It's still 100% their choice. Just because I knew they would do it doesn't mean I stole their free will. None of you would accept it from your children, or if you had children when you were younger, if they said, listen, you knew I was gonna take that cookie, so you took my free will away from me. So really, it's your fault that I took the cookie. None of you would buy that for even a second. God knowing what we're gonna do with our free will does not remove our free will. And out of that knowledge, God makes plans for the lives of those he knows 
will become his sons and daughters. The best way I know how to put it is this. Would you write this down? The Lord chooses those he knows will choose him. The Lord chooses those he knows will choose him. He elects them, as Paul would say. Well, what if I'm not elect? Well, then give your life to Jesus and become elect. Well, what if I'm not chosen? Well, then choose Jesus. And when you do, you'll find that he's chosen you. Well, what if I don't want to? Well, then you're probably not chosen. Well, that doesn't seem fair. Then choose him and you'll be chosen. I've heard someone else describe it this way. Salvation is like a door that has the words, enter if you choose, written above it. And if you choose to enter the door, as you close it behind you, you will look up and see above the door on the other side the words, welcome, you were chosen before the foundations of the earth. The best explanation of election still requires us to leave a little bit of room for mystery. There is part of this miraculous exchange this divine gift of salvation that our minds can't fully comprehend. And can I just say we need to be okay with that? We seek to understand everything we can about the Lord, but we should never lose sight of two important facts. Number one, there is a God, and number two, you are not him. I'm not him either. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And we should never expect to be intellectual equals with God. Go read the book of Job when at a certain point God says, okay, Job, that's enough questions. Let me ask you, Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth, Job? Where were you when I did this and this and this? Can you do this? Do you understand this? And Job just says, I've asked questions I shouldn't have asked. I've sought answers above my pay grade. One day we'll have the capacity to fully grasp all this stuff, but today is not that day. I will just say this, there are two massive things that we should take away and understand from this doctrine of election. In my opinion, the two most important things are this. Number one, God gets all the credit. He gets all the credit. You and I don't bring anything to the equation other than the sin that Jesus had to die for. That's our only contribution. Here's the sin, that's my part, I played a role. Yep, I'm the reason you had to die on the cross. That's our entire contribution to the divine exchange in God's plan of salvation. We provided the sin that needed to be forgiven. We're saved completely because of the work and goodness of God. Completely. So that's the first thing about this doctrine. It's important because it reminds us that God gets all the credit. As Paul would say, that no man may boast. The second thing I would say is this doctrine of election is so important because it means our salvation is secure because God elected us because God chose us because God saved us the security of our salvation is entirely in his hands it's not in ours we can't lose our salvation because we never earned it in the first place we didn't seek the Lord the Bible says no one seeks we didn't seek the Lord he drew us to him God saved us and God is the one who keeps us saved. Our salvation is secure because God accomplished it. That's why I'm so glad he elected me. That's why I'm so glad that he chose me. Verse five, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit 
and in much assurance as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. Remember when Paul and Silas showed up, they were still disfigured from the beating they had received in Philippi, which immediately, by the way, kind of lets you know, I don't think these guys are in it for money, fame, or power. I don't think they're in it for the perks. And they showed up and they preached Jesus. And what's the implication? If you respond to our message, you might end up like us, beaten to within an inch of your life. It's not really a good presentation from a fleshly appeal point of view. Why were you guys, why do you guys look so messed up? Oh, because we were beaten. Why? For being Christians. And you want me to become a Christian? Yes. That's what's going on when we're there. They stood up and they preached Jesus, hunched over from their beatings, and still God moved. Still people responded. They received the truth. And what Paul is saying, he's saying, there's no explanation for that other than the power of God. The only reason that you would have responded to our message is if God was moving supernaturally among us. There's no other motivation for you. The pitch is, you get Jesus. Also, beatings, potential imprisonment, death, loss of everything you hold dear in this earthly life. But you get Jesus. That's the pitch. And they said, yeah, we want it. We want it. And Paul says they did all this, quote, for your sake. The idea is it was for the sake of the Thessalonians because they saw what happened to Paul and Silas. And they saw, you kept going. In fact, you kept going on your missionary journey and you came here to us. Even when things were difficult, even when it cost you, even when you were beaten to an inch of your life, you kept going. And so we're going to keep going when things get difficult for us. Paul says, we kept going. It was for your benefit. Paul says, listen, if my suffering gives courage to another believer, I rejoice. If it strengthens their faith for me to be in prison, I rejoice. May you and I have, have that same heart when we're going through times of difficulty, when we're suffering. Because you never know who's watching, church. You never know who you're strengthening, who's watching you as you go through difficult times. You have no idea who's watching. But I will say this. Most people are far more impacted by how we go through suffering and difficulty than we are at handling things that are easy and good and wonderful. Not a lot of people are moved when we say, listen, listen, I, I saw your vacation that you just went on. That was just so inspiring. It just really made me want to serve the Lord more with greater passion. But when people see us going through sickness or difficulty or, or, or trial or hard circumstances and still loving the Lord, still walking in joy, still walking in peace, they go, man, that, that's for real. That's legit. There's something going on there. You never know who's watching at those times in your life when you feel weakest. That's when people are watching the most. May God help us to give the same sort of testimony that, that Paul did to the Thessalonians. Verse six, he says, and you became followers of us and of the Lord. He says, in other words, you guys just chose to imitate us. When things got difficult for you, you just said, what did Paul and Silas do? Let's just do that. And you were imitating us as we were imitating Jesus when he went to the cross and went through difficulty. Having received the word in much affliction, 
with joy of the Holy Spirit. When the Thessalonian believers came to faith, it was already a difficult time in the Roman Empire to become a Christian. It was a time of persecution. It was a time when following Jesus could put you in the crosshairs of the state and put everything at risk. You could lose all your friends. You could lose your family, your entire social circle. You might lose your job. You could be stripped of all your possessions. You could be beaten or imprisoned. You could be tortured or even killed in the Roman circus. And at any moment, those kinds of persecutions could flare up in the city of Thessalonica. Even though saying yes to Jesus was a costly decision, these Thessalonians received the gospel with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And that's worth mentioning and understanding. They they didn't receive it with joy because it made their circumstances better or easier or gave them their best life now. They received the gospel with joy because it was the truth. It was the truth. And the gospel gave them a joy and a peace that, that was different to anything they'd ever experienced. The only true peace and joy there is, the kind that comes from God, not from what's going on in your life at that moment in time. They were full of joy because their sins were forgiven. They had a relationship with God and that's worth more than anything. Jesus is worth more than easy. He's worth more than comfortable. Jim Elliott, the missionary who was famously martyred in the jungle of Ecuador in 1956, put it like this. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I love that quote. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. One of the evidences of genuine faith is that a person doesn't walk away from the Lord when things get difficult or when persecution shows up. They're ready to die for Jesus. Because if you're a genuine believer, you, you can't walk away from Jesus. You just can't. Verse seven, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. And then underline this, I love it. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything, anything. Their love for Jesus was causing them to naturally live in a way that served as the evidence of their faith and people around them were noticing persecution and loss and difficulty didn't rob them of their peace or their joy or their love for Jesus. Their lives were preaching the gospel to such a degree that Paul says, listen, the three of us don't even need to come and preach the gospel in Thessalonica anymore. Your lives are preaching the gospel all the time. People would notice something different in their lives and that would open up doors and opportunities to share the gospel with those people. And that's our goal, that's our hope, that's our desire, that our lives would preach Jesus, that our lives would preach the gospel. Verse nine, for they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. The idea of turning there is a radical change of allegiance. What's an idol? What's an idol? Simply put, it's a substitute God. It's anything that occupies the highest place of power and decision making in your life other than God. You can be your own idol. An addiction can be an idol. Money can be an idol. Sex can be an idol. Your career can be an idol. Sports can be an idol. Your children 
Your children can be an idol. Anything that calls the shots in your life other than God is an idol. And every idolater is a tragic prisoner for you see, we become like that which we worship. We become like that which we worship. We become like our idols. Is the world cold, materialistic, and unforgiving? Absolutely. So if you worship the world, that's what you're destined to become. What are your idols? What are they turning you into? That's why it's so important to worship Jesus as God. Because it starts changing you to become like him. That's why he says worship the Lord and him only. Only. Because we're all going to worship something and we're all going to become like that which we worship. Therefore the best thing for us is to worship God. This is why it's not vanity when God says we're to praise him. Because he knows that him being the object of our praise and worship is the best thing for us because it causes us to become more like him. When you become a believer, you turn from your idols and you turn to the Lord. Then verse 10, he says, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. Is the idea of Jesus coming from heaven for his church ridiculous? Paul says, hey, just in case you guys forgot, we all agree that Jesus rose from the dead and returned to heaven. So it's no big thing for him to come back and get his church. And then he says, even, and then underline, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. When you take a step back and you look at the whole context of First and Second Thessalonians, it becomes clear that the wrath that Paul is talking about here is not necessarily eternal wrath. It's the future time when God's wrath is going to be poured out on the earth. It's the wrath that begins in Revelation chapter 6, 16 and continues all the way through to Revelation chapter 18. And Paul says here, Jesus will deliver those who are his from that wrath. He will save them. He'll rescue them. He'll spare them from it. That's the idea here. And it's one that Paul will repeat later in this same letter. Speaking of that day, the day when the Lord's wrath is poured out on the earth, in 1 Thessalonians 5.9, Paul will say famously, for God did not appoint us to wrath. And he's not talking about eternal wrath. He's talking about the wrath of God poured out on the earth in the great tribulation, Revelation 6.16 to Revelation 18. He did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. How is Jesus going to save his church, all believers on the earth, from this day of wrath? We're going to find that out later as we keep journeying through these two wonderful letters. And I want to make sure that we all see and take note of how Paul is speaking about waiting for the return of Jesus. Do you get this? He's speaking about it, really get this, as though it is one of the main evidences of real and genuine Christian faith right up there with a life that produces good works, right up there with producing good fruit. Paul implies that just as what comes out of your life dramatically changes when Jesus comes into your life, so too should be birthed this longing and desire and expectation for the return of Jesus. Paul says to the Thessalonians, I rejoice because I see that longing in you. You long for the return of our Lord. And it's tragic how this desire and expectation is looked down in so much of the modern Western church. It's not how Paul and the early church felt about eschatology. Not at all. 
Verses nine and 10 also lay out, this is interesting, the same three characteristics of genuine faith that are mentioned in verse three. Check it out. He says, you turn from your idols, that's repentance, that's the work of faith. You begin actively serving the living and true God. You begin bearing fruit naturally as God changes you from the inside out. That's the labor of love. You have an expectation of Jesus' return. That's the patience of hope mentioned in verse three. That's what it means to have genuine faith. You turn, you serve the Lord with your life, and you wait with expectation. Faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and love. And these are also the three tenses of God's work in our lives. The work of faith is what took place and we look back at what Jesus did on the cross. We place our faith in him by looking back. When we do that, we turn from our idols and we begin serving the Lord. That's our past, the work of faith. Serving the Lord is our labor of love. That's our present, that's what we do right now. We serve the Lord. The patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ is us looking ahead to the future time when we'll be with him. That means longing for and looking for his coming. That's our future. Faith is looking back to the cross that saved us. Serving the Lord in our labor of love is the present and looking ahead with patient hope is our future. Faith looks back to the cross and the empty grave. Love looks up to our savior in heaven who's seated on his throne and hope looks ahead to the coming king. I'll say this in closing. Our lives should be ordered and prioritized in light of the reality that Jesus could return at any moment. Will he find us wasting our lives or living in a way that profits us for eternity? Will he find us shocked at his appearing? What are you doing here? Or will he find us smiling and saying, I've been expecting you, Lord. I've been expecting you. The king is coming. The king is coming. And he's coming soon. Adjust your plans. Adjust your life accordingly. And the only way to have a life full of hope and love is to have a life full of faith in Jesus. The only way to experience real peace, real joy, real hope, the kind that can't be taken from you when life gets difficult, is to live your life in the love of God, experiencing the love of God. And the only way you can do that is by giving your life to God, turning from your idols, following Jesus as God, and then he goes to work in your life, filling you with his love, his peace, his joy, because that's what his presence brings. That's what his presence brings. That's the genuine work of faith. Make sure that you're connected with the Lord. Make sure you're not working for the Lord out of religion. Take a look at these three things. If they're all going on in your life, that's great. That's wonderful. Praise God for that. Be encouraged by that. But if you need to do some evaluation, then do some evaluation. If you need to reconnect with the Lord, do that. We've got a great chance to do that in this coming time. There'll be communion available in the back. If you're a believer, I encourage you to take that. And just thank Jesus for what he did for you. For the work of faith that he stirred up in you. And just thank him for his goodness. Ask him to help you take up your cross every day and follow him. And then thank him that he's coming for you. He's coming for you. And sooner than we think. Let's pray. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Father, thank you so much that you lay out for us in your word what it looks like to follow you, to serve you, to belong to you. You lay out for us the work that your spirit does in our lives. 
the work of faith. Lord, we're saved because you did all of it. The only thing that we've contributed is sin that needed to be forgiven and agreeing that yes, you are who you say you are and you have done what you say you've done. And all we can do is welcome it and we do, Lord. Thank you for saving us. Father, help us to serve you sacrificially as wives and husbands, as mothers and fathers, as sons and daughters, as members of a church, as employees. Lord, help us to serve you sacrificially and to labor in love, not in religion or out of compulsion. And then, Lord, we do look ahead to your coming with longing and with expectation. We believe you're coming soon, Lord, and we can't wait. We can't wait to be with you, to be face-to-face with you, and to, to really understand what it means that we are in Christ. We're in Christ, and we're part of your family. Thank you for that glorious and blessed hope, Jesus. We love you, God. Just allow the Lord to speak to you, allow him to minister to you, to encourage you. If he wants to highlight something in your life, let him do that. If he wants to just encourage you with a word, just receive it in faith and thank him for it. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.